I'm here today to announce the appointment of a special counsel in connection with two ongoing criminal investigations that have received significant public attention. The first, as described in court filings in the District of Columbia, is the investigation into, into whether any person or entity unlawfully interfered with the transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election or the certification of the Electoral College vote held on or about January 6, 2021. The second is the ongoing investigation involving classified documents and other presidential records, as well as the possible obstruction of that investigation. That was Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday, announcing what amounts to a legal bombshell in the two most high-profile investigations being carried out by his department. He's appointing a special counsel to oversee the ongoing probes into whether Donald Trump illegally sought to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election and whether he violated federal law by taking classified documents from the White House and then refused to turn them over in response to a court-approved subpoena. Garland named Jack Smith, a career department prosecutor who once headed Justice's public integrity section, to the job of determining whether Trump should be prosecuted. And yet Garland still has ultimate power to approve or reject whatever Smith decides. What does this move mean for Trump's future and the integrity of the Justice Department? We'll talk to Michael Zeldin, a former career prosecutor and independent counsel himself. And then we'll check in with Sarah Lee Whitson, executive director of the human rights group Dawn, about the State Department's controversial decision to recommend shielding Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman from a lawsuit on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. All right. So loyal Skullduggery listeners will recall that I think it was in our last episode, we had a a bit of a debate about whether Garland would name a special counsel for the Trump probes. I uh, argued that uh, this was a a tough decision, but that he might well do it. Victoria, as I recall, you were sort of poo-pooing that, suggesting he wouldn't. I know you get a lot of praise on Twitter for kicking my ass in debates, but in this case- Victoria won the debate. <laughs> Victoria won Victor- the debate. Yeah. yeah, that was that was then. This is now. I think in this case, I was proven right. <laughs> well, you know, I confess, I did think that it was uh, that he didn't need to do it because I thought one, there was no chance that he was going to mollify Trump or anyone into believing that this special counsel, you know, wasn't going to be political. I think I, I think I am right about that, and. Two, that it would slow down the investigation, that that there was no point in doing that. It remains to be seen whether or not it really will or won't slow down the investigation. Yeah, I I think it's a really interesting question. So it sounds like it's not going to slow down the investigation a lot because he's just going to use the existing team and won't have to put together a whole new team. But we'll see what happens on the question of whether Garland should have done it or not. And the very accurate point that whether he did or not, no one was going to be mollified and 
Donald Trump is already attacking this special counsel and he doesn't see any difference between, you know, this case and 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 the Russia uh, witch hunt and all the other witch hunts as as he would call it. And meanwhile, um, you know, congressional House Republicans who are soon going to be in the majority are going to use this as um, you know, another another weapon against the Biden administration. But it seems to me that it's still the right thing to do uh, for Garland that it's not going to hurt him to do it, I don't think. Unless it's slows the, down the investigation. Oh, right. Uh, but at the end of the day, he needs to be able to say, I did everything by the book. I yeah. followed I followed the rules. You know, that's the most I, I can do. We, we live in a completely polarized, you know, era where all of these things become, you know, warfare. And he would open himself up to more criticism, not with you know the Trumpies because he's going to get that anyway, but with people who are in the in the middle of the country or in, in the in the you know in, in the in the center. And why do that? Basically, the institutionalists. The, and, the, and, the institutionalists. And right. I think and I think you're right, Danny. I think that the one thing that you can always say to Merrick Garlett's credit and occasionally to the frustration of many is that above all, that guy is just going to play it by the book. He's going to do yeah. it just the, the you know, by the book, the straightforward, old fashioned way. I agree with that. But, you know, I got to say, I, I think, you know, the case for doing this was even stronger than I fully realized. I was going through some old emails uh, the other day and noticed that, you know, there was something called the Biden Victory Fund in the 2020 presidential campaign. And. It was a fundraising operation for Biden's campaign. And among the the people who were involved in that spoke at some of their meetings was Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general overseeing the Trump investigations, as well as um, uh, Matt Olson, uh, the assistant AG in charge of the National Security uh, Division, both involved in raising money for Biden's presidential campaign and both are principals in these investigations. When you put that together, it seems to me that uh, Garland almost had no choice but to name a special counsel. Yeah. Which is always the case in these kinds of uh, investigations when you're investigating the president, because it is always the case that people at that level at the Justice Department always, well, mo- they're political most of the appointees. time, most of the time, the political yeah. appointees are going to be in some way involved with politics. They, they yeah, but, but Garland was not. He, I mean, he was a federal judge. Right, he had been a federal judge. He was not but he involved was appointed in raising by a, money. By a, by a he was appointed by Biden. So, you know. But I'm saying, but having deputies who were who were raising money for Biden, uh, you know, was even more problematic. On the question of delay, which is the issue I was emphasizing when we were discussing this the other day, you know, I pointed out that Mueller had, you know, hired entirely separate staff once he got named, and inevitably that takes time. The way they're doing this, there was a lot of emphasis on this is not going to delay. Garland said that they're going to use the career prosecutors who've been working the case will be now reporting to Jack Smith, the new special counsel. So that might mitigate uh, the delay issues Somewhat. But, you know, look, he's going to have to name a point a, a chief deputy, I assume. I don't know whether he's going to do it from career ranks. But it also sort of takes away a little bit from the independence, because if it's the same people who've been working on the case all along are simply going to continue to do what they've been doing. I think that 
you know, undercuts what the department is trying to do here, which is to insulate the case from any political involvement. One quick question for you, uh, Victoria, is there's 11th Circuit arguments um, on the uh, special master uh, appointment, right, by the federal judge in the Mar-a-Lago case. I think those are supposed to be coming up like next week. So does Jack Smith flying back from prosecuting war crimes in The Hague have to fly to Atlanta on uh, on Monday and argue before the 11th Circuit? I'm going to guess that one of these career prosecutors who's already been working on it all along is going to be able to kind of take the laboring or in front of it. But I'm also going to guess that Jack Smith is going to be a little jet lagged um, in front of <laughs> in front of the 11th Circuit. If they make the same arguments they've already been made and Smith sort of, you know, gives the go ahead for that again. Now, granted, there's no satisfying the Trump people. There's no satisfying the Jim Jordans of the world. But the public perception of this is 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 what we're talking about here. This is all about not a real conflict, but the perception of a conflict. At the end of the day. And this has been true for a long time, even though even when we had the statutory independent counsel who was uh, far more independent than special counsels, you know, th these prosecutors come under attack. Sometimes they make themselves vulnerable to attack of being political. We covered one of those, uh, Ken Starr, who recently died. And so I come back to the point I made before about doing it by the book. The only thing you can do is make as much of an effort as possible to avoid the per, uh, perception of conflict of interest and try to build in some independence. It's never going to be perfect. And I got to say, Garland, you know, made the best of this by naming a guy, Jack Smith, who basically nobody's ever heard of, right? We have never heard of him and we've been covering the Justice Department for years. And, you know, having any high profile person would have been attacked from one I side totally or agree. the other. And I'm going right. to go, go out on a limb here. We know Merrick Garland pretty well. I, I am sure that he was completely vetted before this decision was made. It wasn't just everyone said, oh, well, he's you know the paragon of, of independence. He's not political at all. I don't know. I have no idea what his political views, as some people have said. I'll bet they checked you know the campaign finance records to see if he'd given money to political candidates or anything like that. <laughs> If not, that's we the should. least of it. Uh, yeah, that's the least of it. But you know, the one thing we can be a hundred percent certain of is is that every single part of this guy's background is being dug into right now by some people who are a lot like, of probably, googling of uh, FEC reports. I'm yeah, sure to see not, that's the least of it. Did give a dime that's to somebody the least somewhere. Of what they're looking into. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're also we're going to talk to Sarah Lee Whitson about this really um, little surprising to me anyway. Uh, a State Department letter recommending that uh, MBS be shielded from a lawsuit uh, accusing him of ordering the assassination of a journalist for The Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi. It's a pretty high profile case. And, you know, for all the talk we've had in recent weeks about reassessing the relationship with Saudi Arabia, you know, this seems to cut in the entirely different yes. direction. So, Mike, just to be clear about this, and I'm no fan of the outcome of this any more than you are in particular, they didn't decide he should be shielded from immunity. What they decided was that a very longstanding immunity practice that has been applied for hundreds of years in the United States also applied to NBS. How it very lawyerly of you, Victoria. 
It is not discretionary. It was, it was, it was a discretionary. I mean, it is it, not it was. discretionary. Yes, they had. They did not have to say anything. Oh, what they said something case. was maybe not discretionary, but as a matter of law, the law the law is what the well, law is there, on this, there, on this as front. You'll, as you'll hear when we talk to Sarah Lee Whitson, there's legitimate question as to whether MBS qualifies as head of state. He was only named prime minister two months ago, specifically for the purpose of being shielded from this yeah, lawsuit. Well, I'm no, I'm, right. no fan of, I'm no fan of what's happened in this case, but you know. All right. <laughs> Enough. We got a lot to talk about. So let's get to it. All right, we now have with us Michael Zeldin, a uh, longtime Justice Department prosecutor himself and also a former independent counsel many years ago under the old regime of independent counsels. Michael, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. What do you make of Attorney General Garland's uh, decision to appoint a special counsel in two cases involving Donald Trump? I don't think it was legally necessary, but I think it was prudent. It's not going to prevent the critics from attacking the investigations as political. I think former President Trump has already said he will not cooperate in any way with the investigations, something he has no discretion in respect of. But because Biden announced that he's going to run for re-election, and Trump has announced that he is running for re-election, it does create an appearance problem for Merrick Garland to investigate this under his own name. Yeah, I thought it was pretty striking that Garland used as you know, the basis for this, there were two factors. One was Trump's decision to announce for president, and the second is Biden's saying his intention is to run for re-election. But it's almost as though you know Trump himself <laughs> brought this upon himself by making this move. In some sense, though, if it was that Trump announces he's running and Biden were to say, I'm not running, I don't see the appointment. I think it's just the combination of Garland working for the president who is competing against someone who he has under investigation that creates the appearance of conflict that led Merrick Garland to make the appointment. Michael, can you explain to us and to our listeners how independent Jack Smith will be? Because, you know, what we understand is that the investigation ultimately will still be overseen by Merrick Garland and that any decision to prosecute or not prosecute will likely go or certainly go before Merrick Garland. So what what about other decisions that the special counsel would make? Anything else, you know, say subpoenas or executing search warrants or expanding the investigation? On all of those decisions, does he have uh, full independence? Well, it's complicated because the I think of what is a defect in the special counsel regulations as compared with the former independent counsel regulations. Under the current regulations, the special counsel has the full powers as if it was a US attorney. So they can expand, narrow the scope of the investigation, subpoena, bring in witnesses, do all of that which the United States attorney for a given district can do. 
What distinguishes this in some sense from the independent counsel statute, however, is that ultimately it is the attorney general who can override the decision of the special counsel. He has to give, the attorney general has to give great weight to the views of the special counsel, but he does not have to accept them. And we saw that in the bar, sort of essentially override of the Mueller determination that he couldn't make a determination about obstruction, but there clearly was evidence of it. I think that the better course was under the independent counsel statute, where the independent counsel was, in fact, truly independent of the attorney general, and the attorney general had no authority to override the special counsel. But that's that's where we stand now, Dan. He has the powers of a U.S. attorney, but in the end, the AG makes the ultimate decision, which undermines the integrity of the special independence. Does the attorney general also have to notify Congress or notify anyone if he overrides, he or she overrides a special counsel? Yeah, there are provisions in the uh, regulations where the attorney general has to notify Congress of certain types of actions or inactions. And ultimately, the special counsel has to provide a confidential report to the AG. But again, under the former independent counsel statute, the independent counsel could go straight to Congress bypassing the attorney general. So again, here we have this attorney general sitting in the middle of the special counsel and true independence, which was that way it was structured when Neil Katyal wrote these things when he was acting solicitor general. They wanted to avoid some of the problems that they saw in past independent counsel investigations. But I think, as I said, I think it is defective and the special counsel is not really independent. Let me ask a question about the speed with which this special counsel can operate, because, you know, at best, let's say they've got a year, maybe a year and a half to figure out whether or not they're going to prosecute Trump. Would you kind of agree with that assessment? And and do you think that now that a special counsel has been announced, is there going to be an inevitable lag and delay in the ability of the Department of Justice to do anything in this case? So two questions you're asking. First is, will there be a delay? And the answer is, there doesn't have to be, because under the regulations, the special counsel can say to the Justice Department, I'd like to have seconded to me personnel, DOJ attorneys. So theoretically, he could ask for the entire investigative team to be brought under his supervision, and they could just keep moving forward without any delay. In respect of what happens if this drags on for a year and a half, and they get closer and closer to the 2024 election, and Trump is still a viable candidate, and Biden has announced, well, that becomes you know politically problematic. But the only thing that capitates this investigation is the statute of limitations. So in theory, DOJ and the special prosecutor could keep investigating until the statute of limitations precludes them from doing so. It seems to me that you know, the delay issue was the argument that a lot of people were using for not going the special counsel route. You know, when Mueller was named special counsel, he hired his whole new staff. He brought in completely uh, people from outside the department to conduct the investigation. That inevitably takes time to find the people, to get them up to speed and all that. But there was a lot of emphasis in Garland's announcement about how this would not result in a delay for the reasons you just said, that it will just be the people who've been working the case all along. And given that 
this is being Jack Smith is a career Justice Department prosecutor. He'll be using career Justice Department lawyers. Doesn't that sort of further take away from the independence of this? If it's the same people who've been doing under the the investigation under the political appointees at justice until now, they're going to continue to be doing it. It seems to me, it may, you know, from a perception point of view, the independence will be questioned. Right. So the ultimate independence is for sure questionable. Right. But the way the regulations are set up, the special counsel does not need to deal with the AG on a day-to-day basis. He is, in fact, given the authority to not have to go to the AG on a day-to-day basis. So on a day-to-day basis, the current investigators are most likely dealing with their U.S. attorney and that U.S. attorney is dealing with the AG. In this case, you get one layer of insulation between the day-to-day investigators and the AG, and that's the special counsel. And that's the hope that gives it some political cover. But of course, we've seen Marjorie Taylor Greene already ask for the impeachment of Merrick Garland for the appointment of a special counsel. So they're not going to ever satisfy those critics and they shouldn't worry about them. Right. So that's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, at the end of the day, what difference is this going to make? Because you know we, we are totally polarized. You've already got Trump attacking this special counsel. He equates the appointment of a special counsel with the Mueller witch hunt. You know that, you know, Jim Jordan is going to make this part of his investigation into Merrick Garland for weaponizing the Justice Department. So who is going to be, you know, in any way affected by this decision in terms of perceptions? I mean, what what difference will it make um, at the end of the day? Again, if you're talking to the middle of the spectrum, Leave out the progressives, leaves out the, the I don't know what to call them, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greene faction. And you can say to the, the middle of the, the, the spectrum, look, I've used, I'm speaking as Merrick Garland, I've used all the authority that I have vested in me to ensure that this investigation is done as apolitically as it can be done. There's no powers that I have that I can use other than what I'm doing. And so I am doing that. And that's the best he can say for it. And I think that that's, to my initial comments to Michael, I think that makes sense. I want to ask you a little bit about the substance. Uh, Let's take Mar-a-Lago for starters. Um, That's the one that's been getting a lot of attention lately, ever since the search and all the classified documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago that were taken by uh, Trump from the White House. But the Washington Post had an interesting story a week or so ago that the Justice Department prosecutors and FBI agents have not been able to find any sort of motive for Trump doing what he did other than ego. Um, he just wanted to have this stuff for his own you know, purpose. He wasn't, there was no evidence. He was trying to share the documents with other people, with foreign governments, no evidence that he was um, trying to use it for some financial purpose to make money off it. How much does that weaken a potential prosecution here. How much of a factor is the lack of corrupt intent, if that is indeed what the conclusion was of prosecutors and agents? How does that factor into the final decision whether 
to prosecute. Clearly, he took documents he shouldn't have. Clearly, he didn't respond to a subpoena that demanded that he return them over. But that said, intent, how, how big of a factor will that be? Should it be? I think it's very relevant to the prosecutorial decision whether to charge or not charge. If you look at the recent cases of people who were charged with taking documents, Petraeus, Sandy Berger, there was always an aspect of the case that they were using it for something other than just ego. I want to have the copy of the North Korean love letter. And it makes it an easier prosecution if you say they did this with the intent to give it to a book author or to write their own book or whatever it is. You don't need to have a financial interest necessarily. You don't need really any interest. Ego is is sufficient, but it's a much more compelling case to a jury to say, this is the reason he took it. If you can't explain why he took it other than he wanted them to be close to him, a teddy bear, if you will, uh, it makes it a little bit more complicated. But the aspect of the Bar-Lago case that I think is more compelling if they have the right intent uh, through witnesses is the obstruction. So maybe he took it for ego and he didn't return it for ego. But if they can establish that he received a subpoena, he knew what was being asked of him. He knew that even if he declassified these documents, it was irrelevant because the subpoena said, give us documents with classification markings on them. And he withheld them purposefully that's obstruction of justice. And so then the ego aspect of the taking is irrelevant to the obstruction of the investigation to get them back. So you would see this as a sort of one count obstruction case as opposed to a multi count obstruction plus espionage act, you know, uh, plus, uh, you know, uh, mishandling of classified documents. Well, I think obstruction, if they have the right witnesses, like the um, people who moved the documents from the storage area to Trump's office or who have knowledge of the reply to the subpoenas where they said that they did a completely thorough search and there is nothing left to be found. If they can establish that that was all done in bad faith, that's a pretty straightforward one count obstruction. But the way the other crimes would lay out, if these were national defense documents and they were handled in a negligent way, which they appear to be, that would also be a straightforward count. And then that, I guess, is under the espionage statutes. That's sort of the mishandling and then the obstruction. So, Michael, we've only really talked about the Mar-a-Lago documents case, but this special counsel has the authority to investigate the January 6th case as well. I wonder if you think that, um, let's say the Mar-a-Lago documents case never happened, and we were just dealing with uh, January 6th and, and President Trump's uh, efforts to overturn the election. Do you think we would be sitting here right now talking about uh, the appointment of this special counsel? Because in the Mar-a-Lago case, Trump is you know, effectively a target, the target of that investigation. We don't really know whether Trump is a target in the other investigations. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the fact that Trump is likely, under broad definitions, a subject of interest in the January 6th case would still create, Dan, the appearance problems that Merrick Garland is trying to, to mitigate. And I think that the aspect of the appointment letter that requires uh, the special counsel to look into 
the conspiracy to interfere with the transfer of power through false electors, all those roads point to Trump in some in some way. And so I think the appearance issue still remains well, the same. Let me ask this quick follow-up question. Should we or should we not read into the appointment of this special counsel that the Justice Department is getting closer to bringing charges against Donald Trump? I don't know if you can conclude that they're getting closer to bringing charges, but I think you can conclude that the case is not winding down in any short timeline. Because if it was, then you wouldn't need the special counsel. So I think you can conclude that the investigation is ongoing, whether we're in the third, fifth, seventh, or eighth inning, I don't I don't know. What do we know about Jack Smith, who's been appointed? What's his reputation? Well, he's like the consummate career guy. He starts out in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. He goes to the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, rather of New York, as a, a prosecutor. Then he goes to The Hague. Then in 2010, he comes back as the chief of the public integrity section in Maine Justice. Then he goes to The Hague again. And then he's the U.S. attorney, acting U.S. attorney in the Middle District of Tennessee. So he's got a, a long and illustrious career as a career prosecutor. And I think that um, makes the choice of him much more difficult to attack uh, on political basis. Because I think he's prosecuted all stripes of people. I should point out that he was chief of the public integrity section of the Justice Department, which is the section that does public corruption cases. And there was one very big case during his tenure, and that was the uh, prosecution of Robert McDonnell, the governor of Virginia, on public corruption charges. But what's interesting to me about that is they won a conviction at trial, but then it was overturned by the Supreme Court that conviction. And it strikes me as that's something that's going to probably, um, you know, loom in the in, in Jack Smith's mind that, you know, even if he wins a conviction of Donald Trump, especially if he brings the case in Washington, D.C., I think it's almost assured you'd get a, a Washington, D.C. jury to convict Trump. But there are going to be multiple appellate motions down the road and that this ultimately goes to the Supreme Court. Well, it depends. Under in the McDonald case, the the issue was an interpretation of the bribery statute. So there was a question of of law about whether what he did was a violation of this statute. Remember, there used to be a law that said if you interfere with the good governance, uh, you could violate honest services. Uh, I thought was statutes, that, yeah. right? Yeah. And then they said, no, no, it has to be for financial gain, not good governance issues and convictions got reversed as a consequence of, of that. So this was a very specific interpretation of the statute. So the question would be in the Trump investigations, are there cases that will be brought under statutes where the theory of the prosecution is you know less than fully settled? And then you'll get that's almost uh, by appeal. definition the case in January on yeah. January six cases. Right. We're dealing we're in uncharted waters in on January six. So by definition, the, the law is unsettled. Right. More surely more so than Mar-a-Lago. But again, it depends on the nature of the 
evidence and the charges brought. So if there's a charge that is a simple conspiracy to interfere with the transfer of power by a scheme involving false electors and that they can tie Trump directly to the perpetration of that um, conspiracy, then I'm not sure what exactly is. What's the precedent for a prosecution like that? I don't know if there is a, a precedent for that. It's, it is uncharted to Michael's, Michael's point, but I'm just saying, as you look at the statutes and you apply it to the facts, they seem to be more closely on uh, all fours than you know, sort of out on the extreme interpretation of them. We saw the same thing in the prosecution of Arthur Anderson. Remember that there was a prosecution where they destroyed documents and uh, Weisberg um, won a conviction and the Supreme Court said, no, the interpretation of that statute that you applied was incorrect and, and Anderson, though no longer in existence, wins the Pyrrhic victory. So these things happen. And so you have to do the best you can as a prosecutor to answer the guidelines in the Justice Department manual, which says, can I obtain a conviction and can I sustain that conviction upon appeal? And that's the standard, and they have to make the best guess that they can do that. Just to follow up on that, you know, the, obviously the, the laws at issue in both the McDonald case and the, the Bridgegate case were were pretty different than the ones that, that Smith might be dealing with in these particular cases. But the one thing we can predict with certainty, as Michael points out, is that uh, Trump will find every nook and cranny available to him to appeal and attempt to work his way around any sort of investigation. So if you are the special counsel investigating Trump right now, what are you doing to uh, kind of Trump-proof your prosecutions? You have to get facts that support the requirements of the statute. You can't go to a prosecution on inferences and circumstantial evidence. It's a very big risk. You really need as direct evidence as you can to to use your word, Victoria, Trump proof the 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 appeals. So if you have a circumstantial case, so for example, we were talking about um, prosecutions of Trump in various jurisdictions. You wouldn't bring a case against Donald Trump based on the testimony of Michael Cohen. It, you you would be foolish to do that because he's too vulnerable a witness. But if you had uh, a Weisselberg plus documents, then you could more easily see your way to prosecuting a, a case. And so similarly, in this case, if you have the testimony of, of a Mark Meadows that can put Donald Trump in the hub of a conspiracy with knowledge of the intent to interfere with these elections, you know, pulling the strings in a certain sense, then I think you go a long way toward securing a prosecution that is uh, sustainable on appeal. You mentioned uh, uh, Alan Weisselberg, the financial officer of the Trump Organization. I should point out that he testified this week in the uh, trial in New York City uh, against the uh, uh, Trump Organization and testified that everything he did uh, getting these, uh, you know, uh, uh, tax uh, breaks, uh, uh, free apartment, uh, free Mercedes Benz you know, without reporting it on his taxes was done without 
Trump's knowledge, uh, which means Alvin Bragg, the DA, is probably looking a little bit better right now for his decision not to bring a case in that case. If the star witness was going to be Weisselberg, he was going to exonerate Trump on the witness stand, not implicate him. And that's right. And I think that that you've hit you've hit the nail on the head of that criminal prosecution. Bragg, the new um, Manhattan DEA, comes in and he says, you know, let's do a mock trial and let's see how this turns out. And who's your witnesses and put knowledge in the hands of a person whose entire career has been built around not being able to be held accountable. And when that wasn't forthcoming, he said, I'm not going forward. But let me uh, more broadly, you know, the argument uh, against the old independent counsel statute, which is what you served under when you were an independent counsel, was that inevitably they run amok because they've got almost a vested interest in bringing criminal charges against somebody. Once you get appointed, um, it's a big deal and you're appointed to look at a case and you find something that you could bring criminal charges on. And in almost every case that I can think of, independent counsels and special counsels under these regs did bring criminal charges, not always successfully, as we just saw with John Durham, lost two cases uh, in, in court that he brought. But you were one of the only independent counsels, maybe the only one, who never brought any criminal charges in the case that you were investigating, which involved whether the the Bush folks uh, illegally tampered or uh, seized State Department files about Bill Clinton during the 92 presidential campaign. So if I'm right about the track record that they almost always bring cases, doesn't that suggest, you know, there's not much comfort there, I guess, for Trump to think he's going to somehow escape criminal charges in these two cases? So you raise a couple of issues. One is, yes, we did not bring charges. In fact, what we found was that the FBI investigation was based on a faulty recording of the statements of a couple of key witnesses, Janet Mullins in particular. And so when we found that the mistake lay with the FBI and not the targets, we said that and closed the investigation, though it took a long time to do it. But when you said also that the criticism of the independent counsel statute was that they always bring charges, well, they do bring charges in more cases than not. But that is true, as you said, with the special counsel as well. So if there's no difference between them, if they always feel a need to bring charges, then again, it's a it's a it's a push, and I don't think it's you know outcome determinative of whether or not one should have been appointed because prosecutors tend to bring cases too. Right. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about, you know, the issues you were raising about whether you're really independent or not. I'm just saying there's a almost, you know, psychologically it's sort of a vested interest for somebody who gets an appointment like this to, you know, vindicate themselves and bring criminal charges. I think, as yeah, Michael I mean, said, pros- prosecutor is going to prosecute. <laughs> well, but it, I think it depends on the state of mind of the special counsel. If there's look, Mueller didn't bring charges against the president. Well, not against Trump, but although he, as he ultimately concluded, he couldn't, given Justice Department policy. But he did bring many criminal cases. You know, no, I understand Paul Manafort, that. You know, I, I understand uh, that. But if you're saying, did, yeah. did he feel a pressure to bring a charge against? 
the target of his investigation. He could have easily said, I'm not bound by OLC guidelines. And if I am bound by OLC guidelines, I think these OLC guidelines are wrong. And I'm going to take it to a higher authority. But he didn't do that. So, I, you know, I, don't... I thought special counsels are governed by Justice Department policy. I thought that's explicit broadly, in the regulations. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that the policy can't be revisited. Mueller could have asked OLC, for example, to revisit the, the policy because the policy was not brand new. It was done some time ago. So he could have he could have been more aggressive if he if he wanted to. But he chose not to be. So I, I don't know what the point I'm getting at so much as to say the individual makes individual decisions about prosecutions. I never felt any obligation to bring a prosecution. Otherwise, it would be sort of damaging to my manhood or integrity or, <laughs> you know, sort of standing in the in the in the in prosecutorial heaven. I, so it really depends on the on the individual, I think, yeah. much as anything else. And, and Smith seems to have the be long enough in the tooth to not worry about what people will say about him, which is important. Well, uh, I think it's fair to say people will be saying lots of things about him before he's through one way or the other. Yeah. And I th I think I think I speak for Mike and everyone on Skullduggery that we think that you uh, deserve you, you have a safe place in prosecutorial heaven. Um, <laughs> <Michael>. <laughs> you have well, a safe place as a guest on Skullduggery. That's for sure. That's what I live for. Really. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, Michael. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. Okay, we now have with us Sarah Lee Whitson, the executive director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, otherwise known as Dawn, which filed the lawsuit against MBS and his accomplices over the murder of Khashoggi. Sarah, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So give us your reaction to this letter from the State Department Thursday night saying that MBS should be shielded from your lawsuit because he is the head of state of Saudi Arabia. I would say it's a combination of disappointment and anger. I can't say that I had any illusions that the Biden administration was going to dramatically change uh, America's approach to foreign policy in the Middle East in terms of continuing to arm and support autocratic apartheid governments in the region. But this is something that President Biden specifically promised to the American people, to the entire world. And that is that he would hold Mohammed bin Salman accountable for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So it's pretty remarkable that he's gone out of his way to do the opposite. He's gone out of his way to intervene in a lawsuit that he didn't have to intervene in to suggest immunity for him on very shaky legal grounds. And particularly after he had an opportunity for several months, if he wanted to intervene, to have intervened to say, nope, as Crown Prince, he definitely doesn't have immunity. Unfortunately, it seems like this matter was treated as a political football, as a bargaining chip. And... I wish that wasn't 
the appearance, but that is exactly what the appearance Just is. Just want to, one quick follow-up, a lot we want to ask you about all this, but the basis for the claim, it seems to be, that is that MBS, the crown prince, is the prime minister of Saudi Arabia, a designation that was only given to him in late September, <laughs> like less than two months ago, during a time this was already a central issue in your lawsuit. No, uh, absolutely. Uh, and if you look at the sequence of events, it was very deliberately given to him just before the third deadline for the Biden administration to weigh in on the issue of immunity. There's no doubt in my mind that the Biden administration's refusal to give MBS immunity was a major source of contention between them, a major source of the bitterness and insult uh, with which Biden was treated in Jeddah. Still after that, when Biden didn't give him immunity, it basically forced MBS to go with this prime minister designation ploy in a last ditch effort to persuade the court of his immunity where the Biden administration would not weigh in. And no accident, you know, a few days before the deadline of October 3, I think it was September 29 or 30, royal decree makes him temporary prime minister. The deadline comes and goes. The Biden administration still doesn't weigh in, asks for yet another extension. October 5, MBS announces that they're cutting oil in OPEC, obviously, despite the Biden administration on its knees begging that they at least don't make those cuts until after the election. Do you not buy at all the, the argument that they've made here that they're they're trying to uphold this concept of sovereign immunity? They, they're worried about the precedent that was set. They don't want American presidents to be hauled into court by other in foreign lawsuits. Do you think that's just a smokescreen or do you think there's legitimacy to the argument in principle, but not in this particular case? I think as a technical legal matter, when someone is a designated prime minister, it does become a matter of consideration that they are head of government and therefore traditionally under common law should be immune from jurisdiction. But this particular designation of prime ministership, prime ministership in this particular country doesn't meet the criteria on which the common law is based. First of all, the prime minister, any prime minister in Saudi Arabia, which is an absolute monarchy, doesn't actually have governance powers. It's no accident that the basic law of Saudi Arabia says the king is the prime minister. And even with that understanding, the king retains all the powers. The prime minister can't pass any laws. The prime minister can't make any policies. Everything goes back to the king. So MBS doesn't actually get any new powers by virtue of this new temporary assignment. Second of all, in terms of precedent, it's very clear that this appointment of prime ministership happened specifically to evade accountability. That is the sole reason that they issued this temporary exceptional decree to change, modify the basic law of the, of, of the country, which is like the constitution of the country, to say, well, yes, the king is the prime minister, but except for this one nanosecond, while he's crown prince, we're going to designate him prime minister. The bad precedent is to recognize that as a legitimate basis for recognizing an individual as head of government because it opens the door for anyone and everywhere, any crony and any two-bit banana republic to adopt the title to evade sanction and accountability. Finally, 
the decision on the part of any administration to weigh in is not just a legal matter, it's a policy matter as well. And the reason why courts don't treat it as an exclusively legal matter and defer to the executive branch is because it's a political question with policy implications. The Biden administration could have chosen to stay out of the matter, just as they did in June, just as they did in August, just as they did in October. How come all those deadlines they chose not to weigh in to say, well, under a technical matter of law, he's not head of state or head of government, and therefore he shouldn't be immune. They only chose to weigh in after he passes this bogus degree, making himself prime minister. All of a sudden they feel compelled to weigh in on this case. You know, it doesn't add up to uh, anything persuasive or anything that stands as, you know, real substantive, legitimate legal consideration. Unfortunately, these seem to have been political ploys, uh, political bargaining chips, which is embarrasses me to say. It embarrasses me from my own country to think that that would happen. But the sequence of events, the facts of the events, you know, uh, you know, they, they, it's they're a pretty stinky. They stink of that kind of political machination. Okay, so let's just clear up a few things in the record. First of all. The judge in this case did indeed request the United States government to file a statement of interest. That's correct, right? It's correct, but it's not mandatory. State Department gets these sorts of requests and they don't always weigh in. It's an elective choice to respond. They don't have to. And the State Department on multiple occasions actually sought for a delay in in responding to it. So how how often does the State Department actually decline to issue a statement of interest when the judge has specifically asked them to? I'm not a legal expert in this line of work, but what I've been told by our attorneys uh, and what I've been told by legal experts we've spoken to is that they do often not weigh in. So, for example, in the Jabri case, uh, there has been a similar request, I believe, and no weighing in on the matter. So what evidence do you have that Joe Biden was personally involved in any of these decisions? I didn't say I have evidence that Joe Biden was personally involved in any of these decisions. However, I have heard and I have been told that this decision came to him to make. Whether the, that information is false, possible. I, I didn't hear it or see it myself, but that is what I have been told. And I don't think it's an accident that this was filed at 10 p.m. Uh, last night. Yeah. And I do have to say, Victoria, it would be pretty surprising if the president was not advised and weighed in on a decision that was so crucial to U.S.-Saudi relations, uh, which is you know pretty high on the radar screen of the White House these days. Um, you know, I think it's a fair assumption, <laughs> knowing anything about the way uh, Washington works, that the president would have been involved in okaying this decision. And let's ask the Biden administration. Let's let's tell them yeah. to tell us. You can assume away, but at the end of the day, some sort of evidence is usually required. Sounds like something the Republican-led committees in the Congress may, in the House, may want I to dig into. Really Add it to yet another question. investigation that they'll uh, they'll want to conduct. But um, Sarah, can you just uh, give us a little background on the lawsuit that your organization, as well as Khashoggi's fiance Hatice Chengiz, has filed here? Under what is the basis for the 
lawsuit uh, under what U.S. law can you sue the Saudis for a crime that took place not in the United States, uh, but in Istanbul. And uh, at its center is somebody who is not a U.S. citizen, Jamal Khashoggi. Right. The lawsuit is predicated on two federal laws, the Alien Tort Claims Act and the uh, Torture Victims Protection Act, as well as a state law claim uh, for tortious interference with contract. And that would be interfering with Jamal's uh, contract with Dawn to serve as its executive director by committing a tort of killing him. And the the torture uh, statute, explain how that applies here. So Khadija, as his next of kin under Turkish law, which is where we look to as having effectively under Turkish legal interpretations, effectively his widow has grounds on which to bring these federal claims. These laws are designed to permit victims of gross human rights abuses, whether it's murder under the torture victim, under the uh, Alien Tort Claims Act or torture under the Torture Victims Protection Act, uh, to bring suits against the perpetrators in the United States. In this case, there's a direct nexus to the United States. One is, of course, that Jamal was residing in the United States, right outside Washington, D.C. Two is that the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C., deliberately lured him to travel to the consulate in Istanbul in order to obtain certificate he needed to enter into a new marriage. And third is that the aim of murdering him was to silence his voice in the United States, to have an impact in the United States. And there is legal precedent, for example, terrorist attack in Nigeria, I believe, where because the intent was to cause damage and harm in the United States and to the United States, it was held to be a legitimate standing ground jurisdictionally to bring the lawsuit in the what would the remedies be in a case like this? I mean, there's monetary, I mean, there's punitive you know, damages, but you know, you're talking about the oil rich kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So is the point here just to get a legal judgment that MBS was responsible for this? Is that, is that what, what you're looking for and what uh, Jamal Khashoggi's w- widow is ultimately looking for? So yeah, these statutes are, are civil uh, statutes. They're not criminal statutes. Uh, they don't involve the state prosecuting anyone. They involve private complainants bringing a civil suit for damages, which could, of course, include punitive damages. It's very common that even when there's a criminal prosecution of a case, victims will also bring a civil lawsuit. So think of the OJ case, even though a criminal court found him not guilty, civil court found him guilty, uh, and he was forced to pay damages and so forth. So these are civil law statutes for damages, but they serve the very important purpose in this speaks broadly to the universal jurisdiction statutes of the Alien Tort Claims Act and the Torture Victims Protection Act of creating a judicial record of crimes and a judicial finding of wrongdoing where that would not otherwise exist. So they are tremendously important to victims. And I would say they are two of the most important laws that we have in this country to uphold human rights. I understand that there are two additional people who've been sued under this litigation. Does the case continue against them? There are 20 additional people who've been sued in this case, 20 culprits who were uh, co-conspirators with Mohammed bin Salman in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. 
Two of them are his most senior advisors, and they have been served successfully. Uh, one is Saud al-Kahtani, the torturer-in-chief who was involved in the torture and abuse of Lujain al-Hathlul, a Saudi a women's rights defender who was jailed, and many, many others in Saudi Arabia. But he was sort of the principal conductor, uh, orchestrator of the murder. The other is General Asidi, who was also successfully served, also a senior advisor to Mohammed bin Salman. These two gentlemen had actually uh, been indicted originally, even in the Saudi case, but then they were removed from the indictment. So they have never been prosecuted or punished in any way. Both of them are sanctioned by the United States under the Khashoggi ban, but also initially uh, under the sanctions that were applied in the immediate wake of the murder. And their lawyer is the same lawyer as Mohammed bin Salman's lawyer. So yes, we intend the lawsuit to continue uh, against these guys. I think, therefore, this lawsuit will remain a thorn in Saudi Arabia's side and Mohammed bin Salman's side, because if they cooperate and we proceed with the lawsuit and the suit is not dismissed because the defendants have filed a motion to dismiss, then we move into discovery. And we know that nothing is more terrifying for Mohammed bin Salman than the truth, which is what discovery would bring out. If they choose not to cooperate, that's certainly not a good look for Saudi Arabia, disrespecting our judiciary, disrespecting our processes. If we obtain a default judgment against them, as, for example, was just issued in the case against General Heftar of Libya, who is a U.S. citizen, by the way, then we would be entitled to seek to enforce that judgment and to find ways to enforce that judgment, uh, including, of course, going to a Saudi court to enforce the judgment of a U.S. court. And so... If Saudi Arabia's government stands in the way of that, then again, it's going to create friction um, with the U.S. government and with American institutions. How were you able to serve MBS for this lawsuit? We served MBS through WhatsApp as well as through publication <laughs> in wow. a number Jared hey, Kushner could have served him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Mike is deleting WhatsApp from his phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait a second. That has legal validity. If I send you a uh, uh, WhatsApp message, uh, you you are served in a lawsuit I might file? Apparently, when there are no alternatives, um, I, I, I don't know all the legal reasoning, but the, the precedent for doing just that was, was first uh, achieved in the Saad Jabri's case against Mohammed bin Salman for his attempts to kill him as well. And the judge recognized that that was a valid form of service. We also had other forms of service. I think we we ticked the boxes in terms of publishing in newspapers uh, in Saudi Arabia and delivering to various registered addresses. So we we kind of belts and suspended the whole right. thing. <laughs> that service of process was not so contested. More broadly, just taking a step back here, just a, a month or so ago, there was all this talk about how the uh, Biden administration was going to reassess its relationship with Saudi Arabia after the cutback in oil production. And you had members of Congress demanding this. I think the White House indicated it would conduct such a review what do you make of this move in the context of this supposed reassessment of U.S.-Saudi relations being conducted by the administration? It fits right in. It fits right in because it follows a persistent pattern of the Biden administration of talking a lot and doing jack shit, frankly. You know, you got to remember the Biden administration went in saying they are going to recalibrate the relationship. And other than re removing a few Patriot batteries from Saudi Arabia, 
they did nothing. So the whole notion of recalibrating the relationships in the Middle East, dot, 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 no more blank checks to the dictator in Egypt, dot, dot, dot. I had very low expectations. Ending weapons transfers, ending weapons sales to Saudi Arabia, that sort of sank on the get-go. They were they they started playing semantics. Well, we're not going to send them offensive weapons. We're just going to sell them defensive weapons. You know, malarkey, as Biden would say, the distinction is is absurd. There is no distinction. So I didn't really have strong expectations of that. And when this latest round of insult and treachery by Mohammed bin Salman was happening before the eyes of the entire world, you know, I would say many, if not most people told Biden not to go to Jeddah and certainly not to go to Jeddah before he had extracted some concessions. He didn't listen. He deferred to Brett McGurk. He turned up in Jeddah. He was humiliated in front of the whole world. He came back with nothing. And then following that, what did MBS do? He sentenced two Saudi women to a combined over 70 years in prison. He sentenced an American citizen to 14 years in prison for seven tweets, over 14 tweets over seven years, two tweets a year, got him 14-year jail sentence in Saudi Arabia. And then he cut the oil output. And I explained earlier how I think it was very tied to uh, this immunity question. And then, of course, we had the Biden administration making these grandiose statements about reassessing and recalibrating. When we, we and others, when people said, well, what are you going to do? You know, well, what was Biden's answer? Oh, we're, we're going to see what Congress does. Congress is looking at some bills to do this and that, to cut arms sales and so forth. Why? Why? You don't have to wait for Congress. That's in your authority. That's in your power to decide what you're going to sell and not sell. It was very clear they were punting and didn't anything. Let me follow up one last time about the issue of uh, Mohammed bin Salman's immunity in court. As you pointed out, it, it seems like the basis for the the letter that the Department of State sent was because he's been appointed prime minister of Saudi Arabia and therefore kind of falls into the traditional and longstanding head of state immunity that has, you know, that, that's been granted for many years in multiple cases in courts. But you made a very persuasive argument why that immunity shouldn't apply in this case because it was a manipulative appointment, because it's a meaningless appointment within the kind of context of the way the Saudi Arabia operates. Are you going to make that point in court? Do you think you still might win? We have made that point in court. We have briefed the court in great detail about why we don't believe that any prime minister in Saudi Arabia is actually head of government, much less this fake phony appointment, exceptional appointment for MBS. But I would say there's, I would say near no chance that the court will go against the State Department's suggestion of immunity, because again, ultimately, it's not treated as a legal matter. It's treated as a policy matter. And there's tremendous deference to what are deemed to be security interests and security considerations, all of which only emphasizes and underlines that this was a policy choice on the part of the Biden administration, a policy consideration. And if they had remained silent, that would have been the green light for the court to say, 
no, we're not recognizing this immunity. I should point out uh, that I spoke today with uh, Harold Coe, who's the former State Department legal advisor during the Obama administration and was a senior legal advisor to Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He was quite critical of this letter. He said if he's if he MBS is the head of state, that means his father, the king, is not the head of state. And he agreed with you. He said that the designation as prime minister was, quote, flagrantly done for the purpose of getting the immunity. Anyway, um, Sarah, I want to thank you uh, once again for joining us, and we will certainly want to um, stay in touch with you as um, developments uh, continue in this uh, in this long-running case. Thanks a lot. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Good seeing you guys. Yeah.